Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. So welcome to the podcast. This is episode 273. My name is Douglas Wilson, and I'm, I welcome you aboard. Thanks for coming. So uh, today I want to talk about uh, the integrated life. One of the, one of the taglines that we have uh, used here in Moscow for some years now is all of Christ for all of life. What, what are we talking about when we say that? All of Christ for all of life. Well, if we believe that God is sovereign, and we do, and if we believe that Jesus Christ was given universal dominion after his resurrection from the dead, and we believe that too, then that means that there is no area of human existence that can be considered to be outside of his authority. And that means when we engage in whatever it is, uh, shoveling the walk or mowing the lawn or programming a computer, or painting a picture, or changing a diaper, or washing the dishes, whatever it is we do, as as Paul puts it in Corinthians, whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. So if we are to eat our French fries down to the last French fry, to the glory of God, then that means we have to have a principle of integration. We have to be able to tie all things together, and they have to all hold together or tie together in Christ. Owen Barfield, uh, a friend of C.S. Lewis, uh, once said of Lewis that what he thought about everything was contained in what he said about anything. What he thought about everything was contained within what he said about anything. And what does that mean? Well, it means basically that C.S. Lewis was a worldview thinker. It doesn't mean that we have to agree with him in every detail or every respect, but it does mean that he doesn't have a bunch of disconnected thoughts jostling around in his head. He has a web of thoughts that hang together as a worldview. Now, for those who want to be faithful Christians, they should want Christ to be the principle of integration. Christ must be the one in whom all things hold together. It's not our church tradition. It's not our denominational system. It's, it's Christ. And that means Christ's authority has to be recognized and accepted in areas other than what goes on during a church service. Too many Christians think of Christ as the Lord of church services, or if they're extraordinarily pious, they think of him as the Lord of their heart. So uh, I ask Jesus into my heart, and, and he will be the Lord of my life, and that means that I will be personally ethical. That is, I won't cheat my customers, and I won't tell lies, and I won't do that sort of thing. But I don't have anything to say to the larger community. I don't, I, I don't make any declarations about how Jesus is the Lord of Lords or the King of Kings. But Scripture does. Scripture does talk that way. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. And we are told that we, Christians, are appointed to be kings and priests, to rule together with him on the earth. And that means that we we need to start taking seriously our commitment to the scriptures as the point of integration 
of all things. There is no worldview thinking that leaves certain areas of human pursuits outside the authority of the Lord Jesus. This means that, as Cornelius Van Til once put it, the Bible is authoritative with regard to everything it addresses, and it addresses everything. Now, it doesn't address everything by name. It doesn't tell you how to fly an airplane by name, but it addresses everything in principle. The Bible addresses everything in principle. And if we want to study how to do that, we have to be immersed in Scripture. We have to read the Bible over and over and over again. And we also have to be students of the world around us. We have to look at the world around us in the light that Scripture provides. And as we do that, Things are going to be, we're going to begin to sort things out. We're going to begin to see things come together. All of it is at some point in the pretty near future, if you do this, all of it is going to click. You live in the world God made. And God wrote a book and he tells us what his will is for the world that he made. Always will be God. So, continuing on with our study of sin, uh, this is an episode, we're in. In case you forgot, I told you at the beginning, we're in episode 273 of the podcast. So, as we continue on with our study of sin, it's not surprising that a large part of hermartiology is concerned with lust. Um, right? We live, in a, we live in a world that is consumed with lust, and it's not surprising that the world is consumed with lust. This is part two of our treatment of the word for lust, which is epithemia, lust, concupiscence, desire, or lust after. Now, remember that it can be innocent. Uh, Luke twenty-two fifteen, and he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So, it could be innocent, but given the nature of the world and how many sinners we have running around in it, it's not usually innocent. Last week, we looked largely at Paul. Let's see what some of the other New Testament writers thought about it. Here's James, James 1, 14 and 15. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So lust is this root. Uh, sin springs from the root of lust. Epithemia is sin in seed form. Now, not all forms of epithemia, but certainly in a, in a fallen sinful heart, epithemia is the seed of sin. And the Apostle Peter has quite a bit to say on the subject. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. 1 Peter 1.14 Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 1 Peter 2.11 Now notice, he's talking to Christians here, and he tells them to abstain from fleshly lusts, and that means their own lusts, not somebody else's. You don't have to abstain from somebody else's lusts because you don't feel them. The, the lusts you have to abstain from are your own. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. 1 Peter 4, 2 and 3. Here's another one, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world 
through lust. There it is, 2 Peter 1.4. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. That's 2 Peter 2.10. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. 2 Peter 2.18. And then, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts. 1 Peter 3.3. Now, also, here is John, the Apostle John, making what I consider to be a very primal point. He says in 1 John 2.16 and 17, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So I said, I said that this is a primal point. What did I mean? Well, I believe that John here identifies these uh, triplet lusts, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, as being worldliness. Love, because this, this is preceded with love not the world or the things in the world. And then he defines worldliness as these three lusts. And I think that uh, he is echoing or referring to uh, what faced our, our mother Eve in the garden. She looked at the forbidden tree and saw that the tree was pleasant to look at, lust of the eyes. It was delightful to eat, lust of the flesh. And it was able to make them wise, pride of life. So I think the temptation to worldliness has been the temptation that, that, caused us to fall into sin in the first place. And that's why I think John, John is making a point about a primal set of lusts. And then Jude speaks of it as well. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. That's Jude 16. And then a couple of verses later, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. So, you've heard it here. I'm here to tell you, lust is bad. God don't never change. He's God. So, the book review uh, I'd like to mention this time around is a book called Demons by Michael Heiser. Michael Heiser, I, the work of Michael Heiser is, in my view, a mixed bag, good and bad, mostly good, mostly profitable, mostly good stuff, mostly well-grounded. I think there are some places where he gets out over his skis and and talks about things uh, in a way that is more of a swing and a miss. In his book, The Unseen Realm, for example, he has a chapter on Calvinism that I think is simply wildly mistaken. But uh, most of the time, he's very, very good. Most of the time, he is re- really worth reading. I believe that he has... Um, some deficiencies when it comes to uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe that he sometimes uh, gives away gives away too much, but he's a pretty reliable guide when it comes to what the ancient thought forms and sources around the writings of Scripture were saying. And and in this book, uh, demons, he talks about uh, what demons are, where they come from. What all the names for unclean spirits or evil entities in the Old Testament are, and then what they are in the New Testament, and and the relationship of the 
the Council of the Gods, he goes into, uh, well, I'll just give you two examples. Uh, Some of this he covers in the Unseen Realm, but he touches on it again. In Deuteronomy 32, and particularly in the Septuagint uh, version of Deuteronomy 32, it tells us that the nations, the, the nations are divvied up and are each assigned sort of an angelic personage. And these are entities that the pagans would have called their gods, and in the scripture would have been seen as principalities or powers or angelic creatures. So, when we use the word god, lowercase g, god, can refer to a creature. Uppercase g, god, refers to the creator of all things. So, Heiser, in this book on demons, has a lot of interesting discussion on the assignment of various principalities and powers as the the authoritative spirits over different political realms. So there's a there is a celestial being who's behind the king of Tyre, as Ezekiel points out. Or um, Beelzebub is the god of Ekron, uh, the Philistine city of Ekron, for example. The Archangel Michael is assigned to be sort of the protective angelic spirit over Israel. And uh, one time when Daniel was praying and the angel shows up to deliver the message, he says, sorry, I'm late. I'm three weeks late. I'm here late because on the way I got into a fight with the prince of Persia. So if you want to know who these watchers are, if you want to know who these uh, celestial entities are, uh, this book, Demons, is a is a really this is really helpful, really good. There's also an ancient idea that Heiser discusses in depth, and I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. I think it's worth considering, and that is the popular assumption is that the demons of the New Testament are basically fallen angels. The idea is that when Lucifer fell, Lucifer fell from heaven, when Satan fell from heaven. There were a number of angels that joined him in the revolt, and these fallen angels are the demons of the New Testament that Jesus goes around casting out. There's another ancient Jewish idea, which is that the demons are the um, are the spirits of the of the Nephilim. They're, they're the spirits of those who rebelled against God at the time of the flood. And I won't go. I won't try to go into all the reasons for thinking this. But there are reasons for thinking it, and there are reasons uh, that are grounded in the, the text of Scripture. So, there you go, Demons by Michael Heiser. Good, good book, worthwhile book.